God so much now, even if it means going into debt. I understand the urge to give your children what you feel you were deprived of as a child. I know how it feels to want to buy stuff to fill up the sadness and emptiness you feel because of your childhood traumas. Or maybe you were the often talked about quintessential Jones family and thus the trendsetters. Perhaps yours was the family that had a new car every four or five years, took nice vacations every summer, or bought brand name clothes and the latest electronic equipment. Maybe yours was the family everybody envied. If so, I'm willing to bet your parents nearly went broke trying to keep up that image. There may have been many arguments about money in your family, even though, from the outside, it appeared you were doing just fine. And now you are repeating the pattern trying to keep up the appearance of prosperity at any cost. But I'm here to tell you that living high is costing you too much. You are a sucker if you continue to lead an inflated lifestyle by borrowing other people's money. Most of us are living the American dream on credit. We're stressed because we spend too much. We spend too much because we're stressed. The way my grandmother handled her money taught me that most of us, whatever our situation, can get by on what we make. I know Big Mama's common sense lessons about money can help you spend less and save more. My grandmother believed in the principle that it's not how much you make that matters, but how you make do with what you have. So if you don't have much money, you have to scrimp and save to make sure it stretches far enough. If you're fortunate enough to have some money, you have to scrimp and save to make sure it lasts long enough. In this audiobook, you'll hear insights from me, my grandmother, and financial experts to help you hold on to your money. And if you're wise and lucky, you'll be able to make it grow. What I bring to this personal finance genre is no-nonsense, common-sense advice about money. I know from being brought up by my grandmother that if you want to achieve financial security, you have to develop a certain attitude. You have to stop whining about not having enough money and do better with what you have. Truth be told, everything I ever needed to know about money, I learned from Big Mama, who never invested a dime in a certificate of deposit, bond, or stock. And yet by using simple wisdom, she was able to save enough to provide financial security for herself. Big Mama was by no means rich, but she made enough and saved enough to pay her basic bills. She had enough to indulge her one passion, buying fancy church hats. She was fine financially because she didn't want much. Today, folks are taking all kinds of risks with their money because they are scared to death of not having enough. However, if you manage what you have better, even if you never make a dime in the stock market, you can get by, even in retirement. Big Mama lived well in retirement because she had no credit card debt. She bought reasonably priced cars, which she paid off early. Most important, she paid off her home before she retired. This audio program is in two parts. In the first section, I'll introduce you to a list of common sense money mantras. A mantra is a chant, phrase, or prayer that you repeat to yourself. The following mantras are ingrained in my psyche. I repeat them often. I use them to put a stop to my spending or to inspire me to save more. 
I always fall back on them when I'm not sure what financial decision to make. Mantra number one, if it's on your ass, it's not an asset. Mantra number two, is this a need or is it a want? Mantra number three, sweat the small stuff. Mantra number four, cash is better than credit. Mantra number five, keep it simple. Mantra number six, priorities lead to prosperity. Mantra number seven, enough is enough. Each of these mantras will help set you straight on the path to financial security. I hope you will use them as a mental exercise to help transform your unconscious spending into conscious saving. So write them down on note cards and stick them on the refrigerator or bathroom mirror. Tape them to the dashboard of that luxury car you can't afford. Carry them in that coach bag that cost a fortune. And put them in that expensive palm pilot that you really didn't need. I assure you that if you begin to meditate about these mantras, you'll achieve financial serenity. The second half of this audio program deals with the day-to-day -day money decisions we all have to make. I'll give you common sense advice on basic financial issues such as filling out your W-4 form, avoiding credit card debt, buying life insurance, and basic information about investing. Most important, I'll offer guidance on how to handle the many financial issues that come up in your life. I'll answer questions such as should you lend money to friends and relatives, only if you never, ever need the money again. Should you co-sign? No. And whether you should have separate bank accounts when you get married? Absolutely not. I hope you didn't buy this audiobook looking for easy directions to Easy Street. If you did, I'm sorry for you. For everyday folk, there is rarely an easy way to become rich. Even though the ranks of the rich are increasing, the majority of the nation has always fit into the middle income category. However, I know from watching my grandmother handle her money that it is possible if you use your God-given common sense to spend less, save more, and have a secure financial future. Big Mama never aspired to be rich, but she always said, I may be poor, but I ain't going to die broke. Mantra number one, if it's on your ass, it's not an asset. Think about the word asset. What exactly does it mean? An asset is an item of property, a person, thing, or quality regarded as useful or valuable. That definition is broad enough to allow most people to justify most of what they buy as an asset. You convince yourself to buy a big, expensive car because it will, quote, hold its value in case you want to sell it later. But selling this asset usually means acquiring debt to obtain another car. Doesn't that defeat the purpose? Does a banker consider your Lexus an asset? Does it improve your chances of getting a home loan? Not if you still owe money on it. We amass a great deal of things, but how much of that stuff maintains its value? Did you know that there are more than 35,000 self-storage facilities in this country? Americans' houses and garages are overflowing with so much stuff that we have to rent extra space to keep it in. I know someone who rented space in a self-storage facility for her clothes because she ran out of room in her closet. Crazy! I want you to think about all the stuff you have because ultimately I want you to determine whether too much of your income is being devoted to servicing debt 
to pay for personal property that depreciates every year. There are four types of assets that make up your net worth. Three don't require you to rent self-storage space and are more likely to put you on the path to financial security. They are called appreciating assets. The common definition of appreciating assets is assets that have the potential to increase in value and or produce income. The common sense definition is assets that you don't wear or drive and that will help keep you from asking at age 75, would you like a shake with those fries? Appreciating assets include liquid assets, which are cash or other financial assets that can easily and quickly be converted into cash with little or no loss in value, including checking, savings, and money market accounts, and certificates of deposit. Investment assets held for their potential to appreciate or increase in value include stocks, bonds, and money in a mutual fund, and real property land and things attached to it, such as a house, by far the greatest source of wealth for American families. The second asset category is personal property. This includes your automobiles, furniture, clothing, and electronic equipment. Technically, personal property is counted on the asset side of your personal balance sheet. However, once you walk out of the store or drive off that car lot with this type of asset, it immediately loses a great deal of its value. These assets are otherwise known as depreciating assets. The common definition of depreciating assets, assets that lose their value over time. The common sense definition, assets that make you look good but don't do a darn thing to make you rich. Want to see how much of your income is spent to acquire assets that aren't likely to make you wealthy? It's not a perfect formula, but figuring out your debt-to-income ratio will give you some idea of where your money is going. This is a number expressed as a percentage that compares the amount of your debt, excluding mortgage or rent payment, with your monthly gross income. Mortgage lenders look at the debt-to-income ratio all the time. When you apply for a mortgage, a lender will first determine the percentage of your gross monthly income that goes toward housing expenses. Common definition of gross pay, income before taxes, deductions, and allowances have been subtracted. Common sense definition, income you wish you brought home before everybody and their mama, including Uncle Sam, gets their cut. Typically, your monthly housing expense should not be greater than 28% of your gross monthly income. Mortgage lenders will then look at your total debt-to-income ratio to determine whether you are able to handle a home loan. The maximum ratio they typically like to see is 36%, although increasingly lenders have allowed borrowers to have a total debt-to-income ratio as high as 50%. Still, your basic debt-to-income ratio compares your debt load with your income. The lower your ratio, the better off you are financially. Maintaining a good debt-to-income ratio will keep vital financial doors open, said Rudy Cavazos, Director of Corporate and Media Relations for Money Management International, one of the nation's largest nonprofit credit counseling agencies. Owning a home and a car is just the beginning. A home requires improvements and cars must be replaced, Cavazos said. To calculate your debt-to-income ratio, use your gross monthly income.
include any bonuses, tips, commissions, alimony, child support, dividends, interest earnings, and government benefits. Next, figure out your monthly debt obligations, excluding mortgage or rent payment. Include payments for your car, installment loans on furniture and appliances, bank loans, student loans, and credit cards using the minimum amount due. Now, divide your monthly minimum debt payments by your monthly gross income. For example, if you have a gross monthly income of $2,000 and minimum payments of $400 on a car loan and your credit cards, you have a debt-to-income ratio of 20%. $400 divided by $2,000 equals 0.2, or 20%. According to debt counseling experts, if your debt-to-income ratio, excluding mortgage or rent, is 15% or less, then you are doing a good job keeping your debt at a manageable level. If it's 15-20%, to 20%, you're still a good candidate for credit by most lenders. 21-39% to 39% definitely raises a red flag, Cavasso said. At this level, start looking at your spending habits and eliminate credit card balances that carry high interest rates. And if it's 40% and above, this is a serious situation, Cavasso said. The average client seen by money management has outstanding debt, not including mortgage or rent, of $19,000 and annual income of $27,100. If your debt-to-income ratio is this high, Cavasso said, you probably should seek credit counseling. So how do you begin to accumulate appreciating assets? Reduce the amount of your personal property. And that begins with curtailing your love of consuming. Think about what it means to consume. The Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines the word as to do away with completely, to spend wastefully, or to waste or burn away. Many of us, well, actually you, because I'm a reformed shopaholic, shop as a form of entertainment. Americans go shopping on average 1.9 times a week, according to retail consulting firm WSL Strategic Retail. I shop, therefore I am, is the credo of the new American consumer, the firm announced when it released its How America Shops 2000 survey, which tracks how, where, and why Americans shop. The role of shopping in American life has changed dramatically since 1990, said Wendy Liebman, WSL president. No longer is shopping solely about practicalities alone. Today, shopping is about who we are, how